Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is Mark Johnson. Um, it's a fabulous discussion. Mark is... Uh, I mean, he's younger than me, and he's done so much stuff, uh, which kind of annoys me a bit, but he's, he's too nice to be that annoyed, but still a little bit annoyed. Um, he's currently, he's, a, he's an academic, he's written a bunch of books, he's, he's studying kind of the, the intersection between uh, games and money, kind of focusing on microtransactions and, and streaming and esports, um, and we have a really fascinating discussion about kind of the future of, of video game streams and streamers and what that life is like, you know, because it's one of those lifestyles where it seems like it's probably amazing. It seems, oh, we get to play video games all day, but there is the there is the, the opposite side of that. Um, and it's something that Mark has experience with as well, because when he was, uh, literally when he was a teenager, uh, he became a professional poker player pretty much and for many years made his living playing uh, high-stakes poker on the internet. He's also like a bullet hell world champion um, could have been a professional video game player at a, a younger age and just an all-around like all-around overachiever um, cannot stand him <laughs> uh, that's not true it's a brilliant chat and we cover kind of a whole broad swathe of, of really fascinating subjects I think yeah I think you're really going to enjoy it um, this is going to sound weird because I'm literally just cutting in here so the audio quality will be slightly different but um, I just finished editing this whole thing and then discovered that uh, Checkpoints is one of the Guardian's podcasts of the week. Um, uh, I, I noticed a spike in traffic yesterday, so I started digging back through and finding out where they came from. There's this lovely article about Checkpoints in the Guardian, which is, oh man, what a treat. What a lovely surprise. Um, I'm going to seem like such a show-off now when I get into the next bit, but I just wanted to mention that and say a huge thanks to, to John Booth, um, who will definitely be on the show one day okay on with the, the rest of the regular intro um so the podcast has been a little bit sporadic recently which is uh which is a bit annoying you know i've always kind of prided myself on making sure the show was uh every monday without fail um but i've messed up the last couple of weeks i haven't messed up that's not true i, I do this for fun <laughs> um but you know i haven't kept to my own schedule let's say uh, but the, the, there is a very good reason for that is that I've been extremely busy with a lot of other uh, very exciting projects, one of which uh, comes to fruition tomorrow. So uh, as you're listening to this, if, you, if you're if you subscribing, please do uh, subscribe, review on iTunes, etc., etc. Um, but on the, the 3rd of April, Tuesday the 3rd of April, my, my debut radio play is being broadcast on BBC Radio 4 at 2.15 in the afternoon. Um, it'll also be available for 30 days afterwards um, and you know for people in other countries I'm sure you can figure out a way of listening to it if you'd like um, I'm, I'm really proud of it and it's a really big uh, thing for me it's my first proper kind of nationwide exposure as a, as a writer uh, and it's a really good story I think it's really uh, it's really fun um, if you do listen to it let me know uh, unless you don't like it in which case you know keep it to yourself um, well, that's not true. But just you know, listen to it. Tell tell the BBC if that's a thing. 
Um, and if you listen to this show, thank you so much for downloading, as always. Um, please rate and review it on iTunes. Tell a friend, share it around. It uh, really helps to kind of broaden the audience of the show. Uh, if you really love it, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. Any and all donations are, are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Um, if you want to let me know, you can you can email me, send me any questions you like. You can get in touch with the show. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at Checkpoint Show on Twitter, or it's Checkpoints Podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Um, okay, I think I'm pretty sure I'll be back next week with a regular episode because I've got some stuff lined up. If I'm not, I apologize. Um, go back and listen to Richard Gary again. How cool was that episode? I mean, I couldn't believe I got a chat with Richard Gary. I mean, he's been to space, you know? <laughs> How often do you get a chat with people who've been to space? Um, I, I read this week as well... Um, and this actually might have been on, on Richard's Twitter feed, so um, not that I, I think Richard is a, a liar, but the the character of, um, oh, I don't know what his name is, Halliday, the guy who invented the Oasis in Ready Player One, um, Ernest Kleiner said that that was, that was based on Richard Garriott, so it's also very on-brand um, for the moment. If you see that film, you can go and listen to the actual person it was based on's Checkpoints episode. Um, what a world we live in. Um, yeah, so please do tune into the radio show tomorrow, or the play rather, on Radio Four if you'd be interested. It's called Finding Love at the End of the World. It's a it's a rom com set during a potential apocalypse. Um, okay, that'll do for now. I'll be back next week, uh, hopefully, with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Well, I mean, my my introduction still stands. So, Mark, if okay, you'd like sure. to introduce yourself. Great. So, hi, uh, my name is Mark. Um, I'm mostly a game studies researcher um, at the University of Alberta. I research um, basically kind of anywhere where uh, play and money meet. So things like uh, esports and live streaming and fantasy sports betting, uh, loot boxes, gamification, things of this sort. Um, outside of that, um, I also make games. Um, I also do lots of lots of kind of game uh, blogging and podcasting and general kind of popular games writing type stuff. Um, I also used to be a professional poker player for about two two for two two and a half years i guess um and yeah that's who i am so much so much like this is the theme of the show is that there's just there's so much uh so many different avenues because you're very much a person that uh like that goes kind of all in on stuff to excuse the poker pun um so clearly like you while you are sort of uh teaching in um uh, in Canada, you're, you're you're not Canadian. So so where did you where did you start? Where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? Yeah. So um, so my parents both from uh, Bolton in Northwest England. Um, I grew up um, I grew up in a lot of places, um, but I'd say before before I was eighteen, I went to uh, the University of York. I'd say I'd lived in fifteen houses, eighteen houses, something like that. Uh, we moved around a lot. Uh, mostly because I was so unhappy at so many schools that we had to keep on uh, moving. 
but um, I grew up mostly in the uh, southwest, and then I went to York in the northeast for my uh, undergrad and my uh, PhD. Then I moved to London uh, briefly, and then moved over here to Canada. Well, let's uh, let's trace this back then. Uh, so, so Mark, if you can remember, what was your your very first experience of a video game? Yeah, so um, my first thing was, I remember when I was kind of two and a half or so, I played on my dad's uh, laptop, just kind of pressing keys and moving the mouse and things and just found that um, cool, I suppose. But then I think the first game was when I was three, um, a family friend gave us um, a bunch of old home computers. Yeah. So we got Spectrum ZX, a Commodore 64, and Acon Electron, and an Amstrad, though I don't really remember the model of the Amstrad right now. Um, and these each each came with hundreds and hundreds of um, cassette tapes each. And um, I, th- I think the first game I played was a game called Potty Pigeon, where you played as a pigeon and you had to uh, poo on cars. And on people, maybe, as well. Um, And that, uh, being uh, three and a half years old, I found deliriously amusing, of course. (laughs) And I think that was the first. And then um, after that, I spent kind of although i'm of i'm of an era where where most of my kind of game uh, game playing friends grew up with um with uh, mega drives and things like this i i i kind of skipped that uh, era be, be due to having all these old home pcs so i played loads and loads on those um i Did you really not feel enjoyed... like you were missing out though uh no no um but partly because i didn't really none of my friends who i had up until i was kind of seven or eight or so were really kind of big game players and so gaming was just purely a kind of me at home with my parents type of thing yeah um and so i never really i i don't think i really knew the things like those existed until many years later when once i be once i was friends with other gamers and then we kind of talk talk through these things and then i and then i learned that there were these new things called game consoles and that they didn't need tapes and you didn't have to wait half an hour for the cassette to uh, load and so forth mind miraculous abs- day uh, yeah exactly absolutely mind-blowing stuff so but did you um, like in terms of like because you came to this later like and you mentioned earlier that you you'd moved schools a lot so like in a sort of very formative sort of young age did you find that games were a thing that you used to sort of bond with people like did you make friends through games not really i don't i don't think so up until i was at the my third school i think so i was six or seven seven eight seven i think um up until then when uh my best friend from then for the next 10 or so years was a big gamer too um up until then games were just something that that i played at home um but beyond that games were the main kind of part of my friendship with that guy um my friendship with a bunch of other people um but yeah it it was definitely a slow transition but i think things changed a lot when i got um when i was seven i think um, the same family friend bought uh, bought me a PC which had the original Command and Conquer installed. This family friend is amazing. Like what? A, is, what a trove of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this game just absolutely blew my mind and kind of shaped. And it was the first kind of fully 
fully kind of fleshed out game world that I that I'd ever experienced where it had story, it had cutscenes, it had all these kind of little sort of textual world building uh, details and things of this sort. And I think from uh, and kind of once I caught up to what all the other gamers were doing in a purely kind of uh, chronological sense, once I'd done that, I think then gaming be became a kind of uh, site for friendships then, I think. And, like, again, like I don't, I don't want to go into this too much if you don't want to, but because you moved around quite a lot, like, did you, were games uh, a sort of refuge? Did, do you think, I mean, maybe you were too young to even think of them in that sense, but, like, do you feel in retrospect that that was a thing that you could you could sort of escape to and forget about whatever problems you may have had? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for the first kind of 15 or so years, I guess, of, of my life, um, I guess my home life was completely just idyllic, but my school life was an absolute living hell from start to finish. And games were definitely a really, really great way to just escape into other worlds where... None, where none of this shit happened. Um, it wasn't kind of. It wasn't that sort of cliched. Games are a kind of power fantasy thing at all. Yeah. Um, more just more to do with just kind of being in worlds which which was not the world that I was in every day when I was at school. More that type of thing. I'm just. I'm. I'm curious about this because like from like i know the various things that that you've done like you you do seem to be someone who um loves kind of mastery you know you love that Mm. aspect of of games so did that start with command and conquer this idea of like being amazing because like for any for anyone who like certainly this is true for me i like i know this is true for me that there's the a certain amount of chaos especially when you're younger there's so much that's kind of out of your control that can become immensely frustrating and so to be able to have a thing that you can master in whatever sense like and be impressive to uh, maybe to just other people who understand the game but nevertheless um that's a really good sort of satisfying feeling because you can get that that satisfaction of like not power necessarily but just complete control of your destiny that you perhaps can't get in kind of reality you know Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, I think that's a perfect way to put it. Yeah. Um, for me, that was definitely that. I've all always kind of been compelled by by two parts of games, I guess, which is one, which is the game worlds. So kind of world building and things of that sort matter to me a lot. Um, but also. Um, I like to play games which are extremely hard, which is why I came to poker later and why I like kind of, um, and why I like sort of permadeath style games and things mm-hmm. of this sort. I, I like games where there's something at stake. Um, I like games which are complex and deep and challenging, but I also like games which have, which have a deep world. And I think I, and I think kind of looking back, I think those two really, combined be since games like games like C and C where the game itself for someone who was my age yeah. um was extremely 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 tough but also had a very rich world i think those two combined to to make it just the ideal game for for me where i was when i was seven eight nine ten and so so as as you get older then like how does this how does your relationship with games kind of 
grow? Like, I mean, uh, you, you've made games since, obviously, but did you, like, from a young age, was that a thing that you were aware of, that, you know, I can, I can make <laughs> um, games, I can do my own things? My first attempt to make games was... Um, uh, I played uh, I played a game called uh, Tyrian, which was a kind of arcade-style shmup game, um, and I tried to recreate that that game on paper, as you as you might expect for a kind of high-speed shmup uh, game. Creating that on paper doesn't really work, but I had this real kind of, and I I was nine or ten or so at that time. Um, but I had a real kind of. Um, just the idea of creating worlds and creating uh, systems and having people and having folks explore these seemed really exciting. Um, but I didn't make games at all until I was 21 or so. I guess um, the big kind of change was from single player towards multiplayer games. When I guess when I was 11 or 12 or something, I started playing uh, Counter Strike. Then I played Red Alert 2 a lot when that came out. And I spent a lot of time on the kind of uh, competitive ladder of uh, that game, and I spent a lot, a lot of time in Team Fortress 2, in Halo 2, uh, a lot of time in Eve Online for some reason. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think I think once I'd reached a point, I didn't feel that there were too many single player player games which challenged me in the ways I wanted to be challenged. I would later find out that poker existed, although that's a multiplayer game, but um, I would later find out that uh, roguelikes existed, which still now strike me as 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 the kind of apex of single-player game challenge in, in lots of ways. Um, but up until then, it felt like the only way I could find a challenge... Was to was to, was to just play other humans basically. And were you were you good? Like, did you get competitive with it? Like, to a, yeah, a competitive um, level? Definitely, definitely varied across games. Um, in Counter Strike, I played that a lot. I, if I kept playing it for for another year or so, I think I would have been realistically kind of able to compete, maybe at a national level at the best, but. Um, that never kind of went all that far. Uh, Red Alert Two was was the was the most kind of um, was the most competitive game I think of those I played competitively. In that um, I may I made it to the top ten I think of the of the one uh, v of the one v one kind of uh, ladder in in uh, that game. Um, Team Fortress Two was never really all that competitive for me. Um, Halo Two. A little bit, but um, as those who played Halo 2 online will know, um, once you reach kind of level 28 or level 29, everyone except you cheated, so there was basically <laughs> no no way to go further at all. Um, and did you ever think, so, like, I mean, based on, I know you're a little younger than me, but th was that a thing that you had in mind that you could do, like, be a competitive game? Oh, no, gamer? no, no, absolutely not. Because um, there were a few, like, I, mean, I remember I there was, like, people like Fatality and stuff that was yeah, the, yeah. the first kind of pro gamer that I knew about. I guess the big thing that discouraged me from pursuing that kind of career was was the knowledge that you would have to basically spend all your all your time playing one game and one game only. And I've always been someone who gets bored extremely quickly. Um, and just the idea of playing a game, you know, eight hours every day and the same game just seemed absolutely horrifying to me. <laughs> um, 
I wanted the freedom to explore new kinds of challenge every time every time I uh, every time that I became bored with the previous one and the idea of yeah of the same game over and over just in way too grim plus although clearly I didn't have anything close to the kind of appreciation of the labor dynamics of the esportsy world like I do now I think I, I I still think when I was 12 or fifth or uh, 15 or so I think I did recognize on some level that there are you know 10 million people who play Halo 2 and there's two people who make a full-time income from it and I think I kind of recognized okay this is not actually a feasible realistic path um, it's when it's so exclusive, it it comes down to luck as well as to skill at yeah. that point of being in the right place, right time, having the money and the environment to practice, having the right kinds of reflexes, meeting the 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 right people who help you go pro and things of this sort. So I think I recognized, okay, I could invest five years of my life in this and still not make it. Yeah. And even if I do, I'd just be playing Halo every day for the rest of my <laughs> life. And that just seemed deeply, deep, just deeply uh, grim to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're going to touch on similar subjects later when we start talking about uh, streamers and things. Um, yeah. But like, so as you got older, like, was there ever a period in your life that you kind of um, moved away from games for whatever reason? Like sometimes when people go to mm. university, that happens. Um, or did you go so, to university yeah. with like as a gamer, so to speak? I definitely did. At university, I don't think my game playing decreased at all. Um, in in my first year, when I was 18, I learned about roguelikes, and that just blew my mind. Um, since at the same time, I, start, I had started playing uh, poker. So a lot of my video game time shifted into poker time rather than video game time. What did you go and, to university but, for, just to kind of like put it in context? Like, What was your, your goal? That's oh, uh, pol uh, politics and sociology. I nearly did uh, theoretical physics, but I couldn't find a course which I liked the sound of, so I went with uh, social science instead. Cool. And but I guess the the big kind of thing was that when I was seventeen, I learned that uh, poker existed. In that, um, at school, I'd all uh, I had all almost played lots of card games with uh, friends and also with uh, family, and I learned that uh, poker was a thing. And I went onto YouTube, and I and I still kind of recall this extremely uh, sharply. I went on to YouTube and searched for like uh, for poker tournament or something, and I found a video of the final table of the main event at the World Series of Poker in, what would it be, what, whatever year Jamie Gold won, 2005, 2006, uh, five, I think. And the person who, who came fourth, not even first, the uh, bloke who came fourth made something like four and a half million from that fourth place finish. And I remember being 17 and I thought, my God, you can make a living playing a card game? This sounds incredible. And so I started playing lots of lots of poker. I clearly did wait until I was 18, of course, totally. Obviously, obviously. Um, and then once I was playing, um, I was a losing player for uh, about six months or so, a break-even player for about six months or so, and then a winning player at 
increasingly kind of higher stakes for about two or so years um, from when I turned 19 up to when I turned 21 and started my uh, PhD. And up until the PhD uh, happened, my plan was then to just play play poker as my job. So um, it seemed exciting and thrilling and uh, challenging and and just the concept of playing a game as your job and keeping your own uh, hours and things of this sort just seemed immensely exciting to me. And uh, but like, so you played this through university and like at an increasingly yeah. high level. Like how, like one of the things like from reading all the stuff that you've done, like I don't know, like how do you find the time? Like, are you just really <laughs> good at organizing time, or do you just not sleep? Because like that's a pretty hardcore degree anyway. And you're also, you know, discovering roguelikes and playing those and yeah, yeah. making a load of money playing poker. Like, how was that? How did your life work? <laughs> that is such a good question. Um, I don't know. I just... That's so not poker, a very good answer. Just... <laughs> <laughs> so poker, poker, I would mostly play in the uh, evenings and at night because I wanted to, to be online when weak players from North America were uh, coming home from work to play. Um, roguelikes, I would tend to, to play in spare time, whenever that was. Um, my degree, I didn't really prioritize, I didn't really focus on it all that much. Um, yeah, you get fourth I still, place in the World Series I, and win, win millions. Who cares well, exactly, exactly. Um, I still managed to somehow get a first in the end of course you did of course you did of course um <laughs> but it wasn't really really a focus and i think something which helped was that up until then from when i was kind of 12 to 18 or so i was very kind of politically and socially um engaged in a lot of ways and i read a lot of sort of political philosophy and things of this sort in my spare time how come so when, well, that, that's so a when really I, interesting focus for a teenager yeah 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 so when i kind of so when i came to york clearly i didn't know all of the course clearly but um i think i but i think i had a stronger foundation in relevant parts of that course than maybe 90 percent of people or so um was there a reason that you were so kind of politically interested and engaged through those years um like was it a, a family thing or was it just an independent yeah, so, um both of my parents have always been very engaged i guess um both were big uh, both did both did uh, both did a lot in the in the uh in the kind of uh, in the kind of civil rights stuff and the uh, gay rights stuff in the uk in the kind of 70s and 80s i guess um and so i cut and so i did kind of grow up in a very kind of politically aware and engaged family i guess um for for me i this will sound very melodramatic but i guess the truth is just i i saw so much wrong with the world that, that i lived in that i felt i i i needed to kind of take action and that it just wouldn't be okay to just sit by and let and and kind of let things drift on yeah. uh, like they were doing yeah, and then that kind of transitioned into well, I guess I could do this as my degree because I know lots of this stuff and it's a field I care lots care care a lot for. Yeah. And kind of like I say, um, I couldn't find any sort of natural science course 
which really appealed to me. If I had, it would have been a tough choice between doing physics as my degree and then uh, politics in my spare time versus doing politics as my degree and then reading lots of uh, science stuff in my in my spare time. But as it was, York's degree appealed to me a lot and I thought I'd really enjoy it. In hindsight, I was half right about that and half wrong, but I thought, yeah, this looks great, and I know it, so let's just do this. I'm like, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here for a second because sure. I think this is quite interesting. Like, as somebody with this kind of uh, worldview and, and clearly very politically and socially engaged, like, where, because I feel like out of all of the kind of various sort of artistic mediums, games is, are still one of the ones that really there's so few games that really yeah. engage yeah. in that kind of political and social sense, and I'm not like. I don't know if that's just because of the... I, I'm sure it's not a lack of imagination because there's so many amazing people making games. I'm like, Do you think it's just a difficult thing to explore in that medium? Like, Ooh, Are there good, good examples that you can think of, like Beyond Papers, Please, which is yeah. everyone's go-to? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I think the first uh, C, C and C game is a very good sort of political and social game because it predicted astonishingly well how some of the kind of global politics of the next 10 years would play out and kind of what a war between a US slash UN style body and a kind of globally dispersed um, militia style body would uh, look like. That's super interesting. I'd never really thought of it that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't think games are bad medium for the, that per se. I think like all media forms, there's a lot of inertia in these things that the first games were about fighting and shooting and jumping and uh, leaping on mushrooms and uh, zoo and zooming around on uh, loops as the blue hedgehog. And there's nothing wrong with those things, of course, but I think they definitely set the tone for games as this kind of trivial, frivolous, fun, in air quotes, um, thing. And I think it's been tricky to bring any kind of political engagement into that. I think also just the term game implies something trivial and passing, whereas film doesn't really imply that, and book doesn't really imply that, and music doesn't really imply that, whereas game does. Um, and so I think I think kind of people who try to use terms like um, interactive drama, for instance, I think that's I think that's an in, I think that's that's an in, an interesting way to go about kind of reframing how we yeah. think of games. I personally don't agree with that path for a bunch of reasons, but um, I think that the term game plus what games initially were have done a lot to to shape how we think through these things um plus i think it's also kind of worth worth noting that um especially in the last five or so years clearly games which have tried to be more socially engaged have had such a negative backlash that that's that's that definitely makes it makes it trickier i think um, and it's hard for a game to become popular and have a message unless it also has some kind of uh, really deep gameplay uh, aspects to it, such as Papers, Please. Yeah, I mean, it is tricky. Like, just thinking about it there, like, the, the when you think of, like, a, a kind of a, a book or a film or something that, that's really 
trying to make a political point like often that can be sort of self-harming and that it just makes for a really dire experience but sometimes the 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 sort of balance is struck quite right and it's it's an incredible thing but nevertheless it's not something you necessarily want to spend that much time in you know i think that's the i think that's the main difference between games because games are theoretically like never-ending you should be able to a game is all endlessly enjoyable and to have to, to put you in a place where you're perhaps being a bit introspective or like illustrating things that perhaps are upsetting or wrong with the world so to speak it can be quite hard to sort of toe that line mm. i think um, agreed agreed like um something like say something like uh, spec ops the line yeah i thought was completely great in terms of story in terms of setting in terms of themes but at the end i felt okay that was great i feel i've gained a lot from uh playing this i'm 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 glad they had the guts to to uh, make this game, but I don't think I really want to go back to this world exactly, right now. Exactly. Um, and that's and that's a feeling we take for granted in film and books and so forth. But like you say, kind of, we expect that that games should be should be a world we always feel comfy in. And also the kind of all all these ideas around how long a game should be and how much we should pay for games and how much content, God, I hate that word, but how much content yes. we expect to be in games for the time that we input or for the money which we pay, all those kinds of debates, I think, push us towards games which are expected to offer lots for little. And in, and in doing so, they kind of tacitly have to offer a game world which which is nice to yeah. be in for hours or Fun tens enjoyable time. of uh, hours. Plus, also, I think kind of, I think political games in air quotes are strong are quite are quite kind of strongly related in some ways to educational games in general, which clearly people people don't really play educational games because they are games. They play them because they are going to school. And the teacher says, "Hey, you. Hey, here's a fun way to learn French verbs. Time to play <laughs> this game." Um, so, I mean, educational games in ge- in general, for they they forget to be games, really. Um, it's such and, a tough thing. Like, I've spoken to a few yeah, people that yeah. have been involved in that, like like Zach Barth, for instance, in a recent episode where his games are incredibly like teachable in terms of like they mm-hmm. feel like you are. I mean, it is. It's a very good fundamental in various types of engineering and stuff but crossing over that line to make it actually genuinely educational just kind of sucks that little ineffable bit of life out of it yeah um, it's yeah, so hard yeah, well i want to i want to talk about like clearly something that that uh, a genre you've spent a lot of time in and that you really loved was was the, the roguelike so talk a bit about that like what was the was there a specific one that you discovered that was yeah, your yeah. your jam for the next few years Okay, so the thing that made poker so exciting to me was that it combined both luck and skill in that the skill comes from responding to to, to the unknown things which the deck throws at you, right? And um, when I first started playing poker, I didn't really I didn't really think a video game could echo that in that in poker the unpredictability comes both from the other players and from the system. Whereas in uh, CS or some or Eve or uh, Halo, the unpredictability comes purely from the other comes purely from the other players. Yeah, 
as the kind of systems part are tend to be very deterministic. But then I don't know how I found it, but I found uh, a game called NetHack, which is uh, one of the oldest roguelikes and one and one of the most famous slash infamous because it's known for it's known for being absurdly hard. It's known for there being a huge amount of stuff which you basically um, which the game throws at you without explaining it. Um, and it's known for being a game where if you go onto uh, forums and things, you can find a lot. You can find a lot of people saying things like um, things like I've been playing NetHack for 20 years and I've never won. And when I found that there was a game where people could say I've been playing it for 20 years and never won, I thought, wow, this <laughs> this now this, is this for me. must be good. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely the game for me. So I played it and I loved it. And it it basically felt like a single player version of poker, where there's luck and there's skill, and you're responding, and you and you have to make do strategically and tactically with whatever the game throws at you, and just that idea, which had first kind of come to me in card games and uh, mostly in poker finding that kind of concept of of making do do with what you find and being forced to always adapt and to always come up with new tactics i thought was extremely fresh um in and did that, you beat it yes it took me about two weeks but um <laughs> i still enjoyed it a lot and i thought it was great and I just wanted to play more, so I then went and found more and played those, and thought those were were great. And after about a year, I realised, okay, NetHack has has some pretty big design issues, especially when it comes to uh, creatures that can kill you in one hit and you have no warning about, and you aren't told how to fight. That's kind of an issue, I yeah. think, in a permadeath style game. Um, but aside from that. Um, I I kind of realized okay net I I think NetHack was a good intro for someone like me who was willing to wrote learn some parts of a games system but then once I moved on from that into games which were even more focused on adapting rather rather than knowing okay when I meet creature X I need I need to do Y to not die and things um, those seem much more um, exciting beyond that and i want to talk well since we're in this sort of same era then you were discovering these while while playing poker so just i i mean it's such a um i'm sure it's a thing that most people probably have thought about in their life you know because yeah. it seems it's so approachable but i'm sure the difference between actually doing it and then like when you first started playing like playing online and stuff did you have it in mind that I'm going to take this as like, did you have like a, a kind of a goal in mind that I want to try and get to this point and I'll keep playing? Cause most people would just give up after a while. No, no. Um, I began playing just because I, I enjoyed the game a lot and wanted to play more. And the only way to do so was to play for like tiny stakes money. Um, but then once I, once, but then once I found that the level of skill I had was so low, um, I thought, right, this will not stand. Um, and so I felt that the idea of playing poker online and then quitting after a few months down a few hundred pounds or so, 
I just could not stomach that at all. So I started to watch uh, poker kind of training videos. Um, I start. I, um, I downloaded a piece of software called uh, Poker Tracker, which is this kind of this kind of statistical self-analysis software, I guess, for uh, playing poker. And I basically started to study. And I'd say once I made the transition from from losing to break even, then break even to a winning, on that second kind of uh, jump, I'd say for every hour I, I spent playing poker, I definitely spent at least a full hour uh, reading about poker or studying poker or watching videos of on poker or talking to uh, superior players on uh, poker forums and things like this. So it didn't become a job, but it definitely became a serious hobby, I think I'd say. And was there a point where, like, was there a specific game or moment when you were sort of like, you kind of crossed over and you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a lot of money doing this. I'm not sure if there was, but if there was, it might have been... I do remember quite clearly the first time I profited uh, a four-figure amount in one day, and that just felt to a kind of broke 19-year-old student. And that felt incredibly exciting. And I thought, wow, I've just played a game online for six hours, and now I'm a thousand pounds richer, and that money is not due to, well, not entirely due to luck it's due to my own choices and my skill and the work and the effort that i put into learning this game and i think at that th- and i think at that point i thought okay let's just let's see how far this can go let's see where this takes me um and then i think a year later once i was playing at higher stakes once once i'd reached stakes which were high enough that if i did this as my full-time uh, job i would make enough per per day to make a full-time income from it, I thought, okay, so if I want to, which at that point I did, if I want to, I can just play online cards for the rest of my life and make money. That seems pretty great, actually. So it wasn't a planned thing. It came more from wanting to, to develop skill than from wanting to, to create a job for myself. Um, but the first kind of gradually metamorphosed into, into the uh, second, I think. And and so like the, the obvious question then is so why why did you stop then like did you have a particularly mm. bad day or did it just become like you said you know you get bored <laughs> yeah, very easily yeah. did you just get bored of it and try something else I guess it's a it's a mix so on the one hand and I think lots of poker players will say this poker is exciting and challenging and gripping and it's just for lack of a more kind of scholarly word, it's just awesome to play a game as your source of money, of course. Um, but as well as those things, it's also very, very stressful. It's very time-consuming. You have to shape your life around finding good games and finding people to, to play. And it's also something where, because there's a lot of short-term luck, even if there's a lot of long-term skill, you can play for a full day and play and and play as skilled as you can, and still lose money at the end at the end of that get at the end of that day. And yes, that's that's just part of how the game works. And if the skilled players always won, it would be like chess, and there's no money in chess. And I know, and even if intellectually one knows all these things, it's 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 hard to put every bit of your brain and your work and your effort 
into something for a full day and then be worse off than you were at the start of the day and you think what am I doing with my life this is awful yeah and so I kind of been torn between those for maybe six months or so but I think the the thing which uh which which finished it was something that if I'd been in a more positive frame of mind about poker wouldn't have mattered at all but in the state of mind I I was in it changed things. So I would never kind of normally play events with more than, say, 500, 600 people in it, since I felt that was a that was a nice kind of uh, trade-off between the size of the prize pool being fairly big, but also the uh, number of people being sufficiently low that if you play well and you run good, you have a decent chance of making it through. Yeah. But one day, just 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 purely on on a whim um i decided to play an event which had like ten thousand people or something in it right eight thousand ten thousand or so just purely for fun and uh i start i and i started this at 11 a.m and then at 11 p.m uh, after a full 12 hours of of play that ten thousand people was down to only about 20 or so and i had the most chips of anyone left in those 20 the first prize was something like fifty thousand pounds. The twentieth uh, place prize was a couple hundred or a thousand or something at most. Um, and basically, things went wrong, and uh, and I and I went from being first out out of those twenty to being out. And normally, that's just that's just that's just a part of poker. That's that's how tournaments work. But some some combination of my existing doubts. Combined with the fact that, that 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 combined with the fact I'd been, it felt emotionally like I'd been, basically about to win the biggest score that I'd ever had and to win like a year's worth of wage in one day. Yeah. And then to go from from being on such a clear line there after twelve hours of playing so well, I felt at least, um, to then going out far sooner than 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 I thought I would. It just had a much bigger emotional effect on me than any event that I'd ever played prior to that, and I remember kind of walking into the live to the living room and finding my uh, flatmate, and she said, "What's up?" And I said, "Well, I was about to win fifty thousand pounds, but I just won four hundred instead." And clearly, that's a slightly flawed way of uh, thinking these things through, but yeah. that's how I felt on the day. And I just said, I need to go for a long walk. And then I think I went outside and just walked at night for about four hours or something. And yeah, just some conflux of the size of the event, the amount of money, how I played, how I've been feeling. Anyway, this this all kind of combined that when I came back and she said, so how do you feel now? I said, I think I'm done with poker. I think I I cannot uh, put myself through this emotional ringer any longer. And then I think the next day I just took all of my cash off uh, poker sites and never played again. And that's amazing. That's that's a really good story. But <laughs> like, you. does can you still play? Like, is it is it one of those things where you 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 have to either your your it's all or nothing kind of thing? Like, can you still play good casually, question. or do you have to? Um, or do you just stay away? Like I don't because there's you know the the whole sort of gambling and and the the addiction thing they kind of go hand in hand. But I don't 
from from the way you've described it and the way you describe how you approach kind of all games essentially i, I don't feel that was the case for you but because no, it has no. all this baggage like i don't know if you're able to play casually anymore so yeah the gambling aspect of poker never appealed to me at all um i was always a very conservative player so I, I played more in some ways like a North American than like a European, um, which are some fairly broad uh, sweeping uh, groups there. But broadly speaking, Europeans tend to play poker much more aggressively in a much kind of faster style, a much more gambly style, whereas North Americans tend to be more conservative and more kind of focused on... Um, preserving their chips than on taking a 52 to 48 coin flip and things of this sort so i so i i tended to play in as in as non-gambly a style as i could yeah so when so when i quit um i never played again and that was never a kind of challenge at all i didn't feel ever oh i really want to head back on and play that's just not the kind of thing which 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 i would think at all um in terms of playing now i've played casually very very occasionally with friends since then but it is weird go to go from playing about three million hands in the space of two years at something which is your your job to playing you know 500 hands in total maybe in the last five years um that's a pretty big difference, but I do find it hard to play casually now. I find it hard to get myself into a mindset where this is pure, purely leisure. This is purely for fun. This is, and it's, and it is no longer something to be studied, to be worked at, to be yeah. focused on. There's too much baggage, um, I imagine, associated. Yeah, with it. yeah. Plus, um, plus, it's weird because I know that I'm much worse now, clearly, than I was when I quit. Both because I've no longer practiced, therefore my skills will have gone down, but also because the poker meta will have moved on. So, so both because poker has moved on and because I've moved back, um, I'm so much worse than I used to be. To be honest, I find it slightly depressing almost to play poker with friends now because I know I used to be able to do all these amazing moves and now those moves just don't feel natural to me anymore um and that's it's not massively uh painful but it's slightly weird um yeah. it's slightly kind of i mean i'm sure the same upset. is true for like counter-strike or something but you know there, there isn't yeah. that kind of legacy of your life in the similar way that poker would have been you know yeah 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 it just feels yeah kind of slightly bittersweet and slightly sort of yeah just it feels unpleasant to do something which you know that you used to to have total mastery over yeah, and it's now just it's, it's awareness away. of mortality you know it's like yeah, it's yeah life, yeah, life exactly. is going on um, well, like around about this same time, though, I, I'm pretty sure it was around at the same time. Did you go like straight from poker? You're like, right, I need to mass something else. Schmups, I'll do that instead. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, like, was I it literally played... that, or was it just all around <laughs> the same time? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Um, I played uh, Ikaruga in my undergrad, which I enjoyed a lot, but didn't really think about once I finished playing it. But then when I finished poker, I I did want something else to play competitively. I considered multiplayer games, but the, but they're 
there just weren't really any around at that point which really gripped me. Um, all the kind of FPS games just seemed to be repeating what earlier, better games had done. And and um, RTS had basically died as a genre. So there, there wasn't really any uh, multiplayer stuff which really appealed. And then I thought about speed running, but the the aspect of the of the kind of constantly moving goalposts I found very unpleasant in that the the idea of working for a year and then you get the world record and then someone finds a new glitch and then your world record counts right for okay next. okay I was I, I was that thinking that all the way through we've been talking like why wouldn't you speed run but then clearly yeah you just that explained why sound, that does not sound uh, like it would be good for my emotional health yeah. at all so but then I found shmups, and I thought, okay, the goalposts don't move because glitches are not allowed, so all you can do is just play the game. Um, plus, I, with the wisdom of hindsight, I didn't know as much about the shmup world as I thought I did at all, but um, at the time, I thought, okay, here's a bunch of games. I can see what the current world record is. I think I could beat that, so I, so I went about it. In the space of about three years, I think I got four world records in four games. Um, I did overestimate the kind of value of those records, so to speak, in the sense of um, I hadn't appreciated the gap in skill between most Western players and most Eastern players. And um, the shmup community is very small in the West and very well hidden and very kind of hard to seek out. Um, and so in hindsight, I realized I definitely um, embarrassed myself a little bit by overvaluing the world records I got. But but still, it still served as as a fairly kind of a fairly challenging, a fairly enjoyable kind of competition. Plus, after poker, it was nice to move back to something which was skill based on reflex, yeah. skill based on making choices. Um, and I've always enjoyed both a lot but having spent so much time and effort on the one it was kind of nice um to go back to the former and all almost kind of when you really get into the zone playing uh, playing a shmup it is quite relaxing it's it's it's, it's proper flow zen. state you it's know like yeah yeah and kind of when you when you dance be between all all these kind of bullets, um, it's very peaceful. So, what were the what were the games yeah. that you had the records in? Uh, in a game called Score Rush, a game called Bluish Resurrection, a game called Danmaku Unlimited Two, and a game called Chorenshaw 68K. I believe the last and the first of those still stand, but I but I believe that the middle two uh, do not still stand. That's amazing, and, and like again, like with that. But, but, I think one of the reasons that I'm like you know, I, I mentioned like you're you're a, a classic overachiever, but you seem to kind of really get into something and master it, and then just stop. Like, is that the case for for shmups <laughs> yeah, as well? Yeah. Like, you're just like, okay, yeah, I've done that. Yeah. I'm going to do something else now. I was still playing, but then I guess partly um, it was that my um, it was that my academic work was taking up more and more time. Okay. Plus, also, once I learned actually these records are good, but not all that good. Um, in hindsight, it's 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 kind of uh, funny, but um, 
at the time, it was a bit of a kind of emotional blow um, that I I kind of had one idea of what the shmup world was, and then when 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 I discovered the shmup world was something a, a bit different, I thought, oh, oh, okay. Um, and so for both those reasons, I felt, okay, I've got a bunch of records. Um, they're, they're, they are still good, albeit <laughs> not quite as good as I thought. Um, and so, so I thought, okay, time to move on. Um, I debated taking up something new uh, once I quit shmups. Um, I thought about trying to take up some kind of, uh, some kind of TCG game, um, as that's kind of having... That's like the mid-ground, really, between yeah, your, your, yeah, your yeah. poker and video game stuff. Exactly. Having kind of having mastered a card game to the point where I can make a living, an RTS game to the point where I can get to the top of a ladder, and kind of reflexy shmup-type games to the point where I can get records, albeit in games where the competition is somewhat lower than in other shmup games, I felt, okay, so TCGs are kind of the only sort of competitive big genre which I've never, which I've never really explored at all. Like even now, I have never played Magic once ever. Um, and so I thought, I thought it seemed intriguing, but I did a bit of research into the kind of top uh, Magic players and things of this sort, and I felt that the level of of effort I would have to put in to become at all competitive on even a national level was just so huge that I felt oh, actually. I'm not sure how much I would enjoy this. It's not going to benefit my career all that much, and kind of early career academia is uh, somewhat precarious and somewhat competitive. Of course, yeah. So I thought actually, both in a personal life sense and in a job sense, I don't think this is the best way to spend some of my time now. And so since then, I haven't really played played any games competitively. Um, I'd say the closest is like in uh, Dark Souls games and in Bloodborne. I really enjoy doing uh, Soul Level One playthroughs where you uh, never uh, where you where you kind of never level up your uh, character. Um, right now, I'm really enjoying uh, playing Stellaris and basically making it harder and harder every time <laughs> I play uh, until I can't beat it. And I played a lot of uh, uh, FTL in the last few years to the point where I could beat uh, hard mode with every ship. Um, oh, come but on, nobody are... can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but those are all kind of... None of those are as challenging or as competitive as the older stuff I used to do. But it, but it, but it's just a a reflection of the time I have to give in to games. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. This is going to be interesting, right? I'm going to I'm going to take a, a, a slight break to do some some relatively quick fire okay. questions, and I like I think we've maybe answered some of these already, which doesn't always happen. But let's let's try anyway. Um, so, Mark, if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, I have to to play right now, so it's not the game I've been best at at some point. It's the game I'm best at at this second. Well, let's say, for argument's sake, that it can be... You can pull your, your kind of peak okay, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. of a peak game. Um, peak game. Okay, in that case, I would probably... Although in terms of pure numbers, I've reached higher in terms of sort of 
the top X in the world on Red Alert 2, I would say poker, because although, you know, I broke into the top 10,000 or something in the world, but no more than that, um, so many people play poker, that's, that, 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 that statistically speaking, whoever I'm playing against is likely to be less skilled, so I would go with poker, and I would specifically go with seven card stud, eight or better, as my best kind of poker. That's amazing. I feel like that that must exist. Like there must be like a play or something about playing poker with death, <laughs> like or like it's a country and western song or something. There must be because that seems like definitely. a really good game to play. Against oh yeah, death. definitely. <laughs> um, I, th- I think this next question. I think we've already established this, but are you a, a particularly competitive gamer? I used to be extremely so, and to an extent, somewhat. But these days, I'm more keen. I'm more keen on games where I'm playing against myself. So in the last little while, I've been really enjoying uh, playing Stellaris and playing Alpha Centauri as well, and just basically trying to trying to be able to to uh, beat them both on the highest kind of levels and these sorts of things. But I think given the give, but given that I've now quit poker and I've quit bullet hell games and I've quit competitive online games, I think I think it's extremely unlikely I will ever play any game in a multiplayer competitive sense ever again, at least on a kind of serious level. I think that's very unlikely. That's fair enough. Um, given the kind of the the range of uh, of emotions games can can uh, convey, one of the rarest is still is still comedy. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, what what games have really made you laugh? Yeah, again, this is a tough one. Um, but I, I, I it's purposefully tough. Well. I can think of two. So, Castle Crashers really made. Okay, laugh. I think it's 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 very crass humor in lots of cases, but um, I really enjoyed it. It really made me laugh. It has a lot of very amusing kind of pop culture references, um, and it really makes me chuckle a lot. And the other I'd say, in fact, is the multiplayer on Dark Souls and Bloodborne games, just because you can okay. troll and grief in such exciting ways um, that I think that there's a lot of comedy to be gained from the multiplayer aspects of those games, um, either as a player or or just viewing on uh, YouTube. And also, I guess the third one would be I really enjoy glitch videos as well. Um, I like them in an intellectual sense because they kind of subvert the texture of, of what we think this game is and so forth. But I also like them just just purely in a hey, this guy's head has come off. That's quite funny. <laughs> so I so I get a little bit of 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 game humor from uh, those also. That's good. Actually, I, I, that's the first time that anyone's mentioned. Um like the Dark Souls or Bloodborne games. And I think that's that's a really a really good kind of uh, example because not just in the, the multiplayer stuff, but in the in the notes that people Oh yes, behind. yes. Because you have like you have such a limited kind of vocabulary. Yeah. You have like set phrases which you can match together. Some of the things people come up with are really, really clever, really funny. Honestly. <laughs> Um, that's that's a really good shape. Um, well, I guess like to to bring us kind of more up to date then. So so you as as we mentioned at the beginning, your your current research is is all to do with kind of Twitch and and online streaming, and and I, I believe that's what the book coming up is about it's, as well. Yes, yeah? yes. So um, and yes. so where did that interest sort of start to form? Yeah. So um, so the book I have coming out soon is about uh, randomness in games, but the but the but the book I'm working on now is the is the uh, Twitch one. So the Twitch stuff. Um, 
I started watching Twitch again when I got ill, and that really and that really helped me a lot. Um, and I I was interested in it, but I wasn't really sure how big it would become at that point because this is two thousand two to two thousand three or so. So it's clearly big, but it. It wasn't yet clear whether it would be a big fish in a small pond or a big fish in the entire big pond. Um, and but then what happened was I started be to become keen on researching esports because it's competitive gaming. So I thought that this is something I know well and can research. But then um, basically purely by Twitch wound up in fact getting in touch with me. So um, because they'd seen some of the work I'd done on esports. And they were keen to talk about esports, but then over time, this kind of metamorphosed into broader kind of research relationship, where they were after the stuff which myself and a uh, colleague and friend could bring to them in terms of qualitative research. Because Twitch, like lots of companies, tends to focus on the quantitative rather than the qualitative. Um, and so, just to, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just to sort of get a, a better idea, because I'm not quite sure what the like what your angle is into this like what is that what is it that you're looking at in terms of twitch and and is it specifically twitch or is it just game streaming and esports in general it's game streaming and esports in general but twitch is just such a huge part of that that uh, the, two, oh, yeah, of the two are kind of the same thing so um we're basically focused on the kind of work and labor of streaming on twitch basically and the people talk about twitch in the same way lots of people talk about poker in that it's a quote hard way to make an easy living unquote um in the people think hey i can play a game as a living this will be fun and great and then you realize oh my god this is a huge amount of work and so much yeah. more work than just working in a shop or something um so our our research has really kind of focused on what is the work of streaming in terms of broadcasting, in terms of talking to viewers, in terms of going to cons, in terms of preparing games, in terms of meeting with sponsors, in terms of building one's brand for oneself, for one's for excuse me for one's channel, for one's viewers, um, in terms of choosing the rules for your chat, in terms of handling mod duration as i'm just talking with twitch it's just it's such a deeply new career path where yeah. anyone can become a kind of tv provider as one other twitch uh researcher has uh expressed it and so we basically want to research okay what what does it take to go from zero to i'm now making a full-time income on twitch and then related to that there's a bunch of kind of broader questions around like um how do things like sex and race and gender and health play out on Twitch? Um, where does Twitch fit into the kind of broader sort of contemporary media economy in terms of things like uh, Netflix and Amazon uh, video and things of this sort? Um, where does Twitch fit in with other live streaming things such as on Facebook? Um, and also, also, and also, uh, where where does Twitch where does Twitch kind of slot kind of slot into the wider games sector? in terms of how is games yeah. in industry being changed or not by the existence of Twitch. So our... That's yeah, a whole lot of stuff it, there. It is, it is. The the core thing is the labor of being a Twitch streamer and then the other kind of per, other kind of peripheral things are more to do with the broader ecosystem of Twitch or involving Twitch, which influence the lives of those on Twitch. That, that's i mean that, that is incredibly broad but also the, the one thing that occurred to me as you were talking through that like that side of it the kind of the the labor side of it in terms of moderation and and, and partnerships and stuff i feel like 
surely if it doesn't already exist already like within a few years that will be its own cottage industry you know yeah. like twitch enablers essentially um because i th- i feel like there could be people that could do all of that completely perfectly mm. and yet still not find i think finding the audience must like there's a there's an intangible to it in, yeah. in terms of like luck and timing and the the right game and the right person mm. with that game um, that must be almost impossible to quantify yes definitely so there is already a bunch of people who make their full-time incomes basically helping twitch streamers so there are people whose jobs are creating the uh kind of graphics and the uh layouts and things for twitch streamers and in terms of luck one of our big findings is yes that um that luck matters that luck is is really crucial in terms of being seen, and also that um, if you're a big name in games before you come on to Twitch, then you're more likely to become a big name on Twitch. In the sense of um, there's there's roughly say three thousand people who make a full time income on Twitch, roughly give or take, um, and maybe let's say one in ten thousand people who who start streaming on Twitch is already a big name on YouTube or a big name on Reddit or a big name on a forum or something. But of yeah. those three all of those three thousand who make it to a to a full time income, well over fifty percent of those were already big names, even though only one in ten thousand people also who stream are already big names. So existing kind of cultural capital with within games helps you a lot to succeed in uh, Twitch. But also another finding is that uh, loads of the Twitch streamers who we've talked to have this very strong sense of kind of neoliberal subjectivity in the sense of they understand their successes purely in terms of their own skill, in terms of their own hard work, in terms of their own effort and their careful planning, and yet they also say things which show to us that yes, you have worked hard, but you also were in the perfect place at the perfect time, or you were already well known, or a game came out, and just by chance, you you got on the on the, the yeah, front the page. Of exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so in this kind of era where kind of entrepreneurial workers are seen as the kind of ideal form of worker in lots of ways, people on Twitch are self-defining themselves in those kinds of ways. And yes, those aspects do matter, but there's also a lot of kind of external contingencies which they tend to which they no, we're there, but they tend to overlook in telling the explanation of why they are where they are. That's fascinating. Like, I, I, I wonder why that is. Like, I feel part of it is maybe. I mean, you're obviously much better equipped to answer this than I am. But part of it would probably be that you know, it's just people like to justify yes. themselves. Yes. You know, so you know, you don't want to act like oh, I've just got lucky because that kind of uh, issues all your hard work but also i imagine they're all quite young as well yeah. so they won't you know you have that kind of worldview in general when you're young that i'm going to do it all myself this is all my own merit yes definitely definitely on both um almost everyone who we've talked to is in the 20 to 30 range though we have talked to a few in the 30 to 40 range and and a tiny handful over uh, 40 um and yeah it also varies in the, the streamers who within interviewed who have dis who have disabilities or uh serious health issues they tend to be more critically aware of the path towards their own success um i think that there's a bunch of reasons for that but i think it's mostly be 
I think because they are more aware of kind of what they can do and what they can't do, and therefore how these aspects influence their stream, and therefore what aspects have been influenced from outside of themselves, um, I think that there's 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 a much stronger kind of critical awareness there of how to succeed on Twitch. But also for loads of people, this is their first job ever, is going from being a teenager at a school to, hey, I'm now a full-time Twitch streamer. And although these these do tend to be very smart, aware people, they aren't necessarily people with a huge amount of kind of broader life experience um, or broader Absolutely, kind of yeah. awareness of the contemporary job economy and how insanely lucky they are to be young people who found... And a reasonably non-precarious job in the present market, which is not like a gig economy job or something. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, I, I can't help but kind of compare it to like, you know, with the rise of the internet, I remember, I can't remember what blog it was that I was reading. It was some very popular blog that I was reading. And this is probably like seven or eight mm-hmm. years ago, um, if not longer. And it was someone asking advice, like, how do I how do I kind of get a, a popular blog, a blog like yours? And the advice was start five years. Yeah, ago yes, well, yes. That, that window has passed mm-hmm. now. And I feel like that's possibly true for, for Twitch mm-hmm. as well, because it's if you have an established presence there and that is your job and you're doing okay mm-hmm. at it, it's unlikely that, you know, you're not going to, it's not something you promote out of necessarily. Yeah. So it's just, you there, there is no one making room for new people. There's just going to be more people. Well, that's a complex one. Maybe that's not true. It's, I don't know. Yeah, it's, there's many kind of layers to that. So as Twitch grows, more people can reach the level where they can make a full-time income because there's just more cash within the kind of economy of people giving money to to streamers. On the other hand, Twitch, Twitch, much like academia, is growing faster uh, in terms of people at the bottom level than the top level can handle. So whereas when you started, you had a one in X chance of re- of become uh, of of becoming a pro. Now it's a one in ten X or one twenty X or something. But also, a lot of successful streamers who we talked to, who insisted that this would be anonymized, said that they intend to retire at some point soonish. Because a lot of them expressed that that the stress and the time c- commitments and so forth were simply too big for them to stick with, and they felt afraid that Twitch might fold or that the platform might close, and therefore they and and when all of their income is tied to a third-party platform which they don't have any direct control over, and when they aren't employees of Twitch, of course, strictly speaking. Yeah. Um, Although, in one sense, they are not precarious in the way that, say, someone who drives Uber or something is, they are still yeah. precarious compared to you know someone with a with a job in an office or something. So, um, a lot of them expressed fears fears about that and plan to retire. So, so that will be freeing up space at the top level. So, there's a lot of kind of concurrent trends which will shape. Uh, which would just shape what happens here, basically. Although, in terms of the retiring streamers, this is a this is a side note, but but I but I think it's very uh, striking, is that a lot of them said that 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 they were not going to announce that they planned to retire until the the, the day when they did when when they will. 
Yeah, because you don't want people to drop off. Exactly, but they said that they they feared even if they announced five years in advance that they were quitting five years, they said, we know we will already lose viewers even with a five-year-hence promise of quitting. And that's a really kind of striking comment which a bunch of people made because it implies, if we think about Twitch viewers... It implies that Twitch viewers are implicitly feeling that they are entitled to infinite content, right? Because if a TV series yeah. said, we will have five more seasons, it would be absurd to think people will say, only five? Pfft, I'm going to stop watching you now. Of course not. That's completely bonkers. And yet on Twitch, and yet Twitch is free, of course, as, as, as well to watch. And yet on Twitch... As soon as someone says, I, I plan to retire in five years, viewers are expected to start leaving. And that's really weird and really different to, to, to the kind of expectations of what am I owed by supporting this that exist in any other media form anywhere, I think. Yeah, that's crazy. That, that's like, it's such a, I mean, I don't know, like, do, do you feel like it has, um, like I, like I feel like you know, similar to to blogging and podcasts and stuff, which are kind of disruptive new mediums. Yeah. Once they're established, they are established. Like they're not gonna, their their popularity may wax and wane, but they're not gonna go away. You know, and that's probably true of of streaming oh, as yeah. well. But do you think, do you think it's kind of, I don't know. Like, do you think there's still a lot of room for growth? Do you think it's kind of, it's always going to be niche, or do you think it will get much much bigger or or not? I mean, well. Maybe two in the last year, well over 100 million people viewed Twitch, which is a pretty big number as things go. And somewhere in the range of 2 million people streamed on Twitch. And with those kinds of numbers, I, as you say, it, it is not going anywhere. Um, plus, of course, Twitch is expanding into streams which aren't related to games, of course. And it will be interesting to see where that goes because um, a lot of the older Twitch people, old in sense of having been on the platform for more time, time I mean, um, they are very hesitant about this because it was a purely games-focused platform, and it and it is still now, you know, ninety-nine point four percent games or something. Um, but even so, it is still not one hundred percent games, which it was. But a lot, but a lot of people, of course, have now found success and found jobs streaming non-game stuff and clearly they want to keep this because now they make money they make money from home and they make yeah. costumes or they go to restaurants or or whatever it is that that uh, they do so i think there will i think there's the potential for a kind of a kind of cultural challenge over legitimacy in the next few years i think that i yeah, think that so could definitely yeah. happen i think there there could be a battle over what twitch is what twitch should be who is legitimate to speak, as it were, on Twitch, and what and what kinds of streams we we expect to see? From Twitch's perspective, I can clearly understand why they want to expand it. Of course, um, excuse me. Plus, there's there's no real competitors to Twitch. Um, if say Twitch was still pure games, and there was another site which did purely non-game live streaming, I think that would that would be a profoundly kind of different ecosystem to, to think about in terms of the future of live streaming. But when yeah. Twitch has such a monopoly on uh, on the practice, I think 
it's a very different dynamic for 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 thinking through will this stay because the practice is is now not just the practice it's the it's the practice and the company which are f- which are just the the same thing really yeah i mean it's it's really like um i often think of um ready player one yeah. which is a I, I don't think it's a it's a, it's a great book but it has some really neat ideas like really in in many ways quite mm. prescient ideas and and the the one of them that always sticks out to me with the the rise in twitch streaming is that basically like everyone has their own channel yeah, yeah. and you just and they they stream whatever they want like old episodes of tv shows and blogs and vlogs and games and it's just you know you are a fan of a specific person and you you tune into their channel yeah um, yeah which I think is definitely like if not if if it's not already true, it'll become increasingly true as the as the years go. Yeah, on, you know? it will be interesting to see what happens to traditional TV within this kind of ecosystem because there's there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about can we get games and can we get esports onto mainstream TV, and that's pretty problematic for a bunch of reasons, such as um, the big one being. If you've never watched a game of tennis and you turn on tennis, within two minutes you know what the rules are just from watching. Yeah. If you've never seen a game of League and you and you turn on League, no matter how game literate you are, you will have no idea what is taking place outside of there's two teams and they shoot each other with magic. Outside yeah. of that, I mean, I've I've tried yeah. several times to get into Dota, like to to watch it because it's so popular. And I just it's yeah, yeah. because I don't play. So it. getting that out to a traditional TV crowd, I think, is quite hard. Plus, clearly, although games are far more mainstream, a lot of games do still have that kind of subcultural sense of only gamers play games type of thing. So um, I think the idea of the games will move on to normal TV is hard to see how that would happen. But also it's, it's intriguing to ask if everyone has their own TV channel, then will mainstream TV change or will the fact that it can pay so much money to produce things still keep its own unique little niche? And yet, of course, Twitch is even making small inroads there. Like uh, last year or the year before, when Star Trek Beyond came out, they did this um, advertising campaign for it where they took 10 well-known streamers and they filmed them offline and then they edited the film so that it looked like they were they were being beamed out of their chairs. And then they spliced those pre-recorded CGI sections into a live stream and pretended it was live so that uh, these streamers were then beamed out of their streams live. And if you look at the chat windows, everyone just completely goes goes mad and says, oh my God, oh my God, what just happened? That's so cool, etc. And so... That's amazing. Kind of, I didn't hear yeah, that. Yeah. That's so much So fun. this kind of transmedia advertising kind of stuff, um, they, did, they did that for, for Star Trek Beyond, for Alien Covenant, and for one other film. I, I can't remember what the third one was right now. But those seem to be well-received, and I think those showed how Twitch, in the sense of the platform holders, can offer some of the production money that a normal tele- television company would for their streamers. And that and that and that relationship, although it's really tiny, it all though it's like zero point zero 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 one percent of what's on Twitch now. Just the idea of the platform holder contributing money and support in a sense that the platform user, the broadcaster, cannot do, is quite interesting. And I think it'll be it'll be cool to see if that goes anywhere within the next few years. 
Yeah, no, it's it's so interesting, and it's kind of like I think this. I've been thinking this a lot recently because, like, I'm I'm a writer. Like, I write for for TV and radio and stuff. So, I long may it continue as far as I'm That's concerned. Very, that's very but cool. I don't know if it's because I'm I'm getting older. Like, I'm I'm 36 now, and like, I I don't have like I don't really use regular TV. You know, I don't watch terrestrial TV. I don't have a, a, an aerial. So I just watch so. everything via you know via streaming services via like you know iPlayer or Netflix yeah. and things like that. Um, and part of me kind of it's whenever especially if i go home and, and i see like go and visit my mom or something and, and they'll just have regular tv like and i grew up in a house where the tv was on pretty much all the time and it was very something very comforting about that and i find myself more and more now you know when you end up kind of you know scrolling through netflix for half an hour trying to figure out something to watch <laughs> like I, yeah. i'm more and more starting to think oh I, I wish there was just like some curated thing I could just put mm. on and it would just show me the best bits. Like, oh no, that's, that's what TV is <laughs> slash was. Yeah. Uh, I find myself kind of yearning for that a little bit. Like you, you, the, the kind of the paralysis of choice, you're just like, Oh, just somebody else decide for <laughs> me and show me the best bits. Interesting. Interesting. Um, mm. I mean, I, I mean, but the thing about that is like, I do think that, and I think, Oh, maybe that's the way, maybe we'll go full circle and go back, mm. in, back into that. But I don't know if, part of the reason i feel like that is um is nostalgia mm. you know because probably for a lot of kids like you know young teens uh, and well maybe like sort of mid-teens and younger like they didn't they wouldn't have that memory of you know they would have grown up with on-demand everything so they wouldn't mm. have that kind of association maybe i'm, ju- I'm just thinking out loud yeah yeah like, um yeah, i mean a lot of the people who I teach now uh, don't have TVs like I don't, and are are definitely more streaming streaming native, I guess, than uh, I am or you would be. Um, it's tricky because I think that there are also some aspects of tr- traditional TV which the Netflix model fundamentally loses out on, such such as what you've just said about this kind of the paralysis of choice and just having you just turn yeah. on watch something but also so back when lost was on i absolutely i absolutely adored lost the yeah, final the final that. season was total garbage and i hate it and i pretend it didn't exist but outside of that it was spectacular i thought it wasn't that bad. Oh, um so uh, but for me the really crucial thing about lost was that for for my for my friends at school and i it it was a shared experience we could talk about every single week. We Absolutely, we would say, yeah. so what the hell did this mean, and why did this happen? Why did this person say this, and who's this person? And are they alive? Are they dead? Are they immortal? What's the smoke monster? What does all this mean? And that could only happen by with something released every every week, of course. Um, and and although there are very few series which made for the kind of water cooler in air, in air quotes conversation which was as good as Lost's, I think the instant access, it does mean that you you can't take time to think through every episode, and you, you don't really have to talk it through with friends, and it becomes more to do with how much have you watched yet when you talk with your friends, rather than what did you think of last night's yeah. episode. And I think... That's one of the reasons I've actually been really enjoying uh, the new Star Trek series, yes. because it's weekly. Mm. And they, they, I, I don't know if they're playing into that on purpose, but mm, it's, mm. it's the most kind of twisty, turny version of Star Trek I've ever mm. seen. So there's a lot of like, oh my god, did you see that? Mm, and mm. then you know, lots of fan theory discussion. Yeah, yeah. So 
I think those things are definitely definitely lost. Plus, also when we're live streaming, I think there's also a kind of content overflow issue, which is, um, I mean, most streamers to be successful, they stream, you know, eight hours a day every day or something, or or eight hours a day, a day, a day, most days, and that's just too much content to watch. And yet, I think normal TV and normal TV series have kind of inculcated the sense in us that we need to be exhaustive in the content that we watch. If we miss an episode, then we've missed something crucial, right? And to me, psychologically, it really bothers me when I miss broadcast streamers who I care about. But because they broadcast so much, I basically literally have one streamer these days who I watch because that's 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 the the most content I can keep on top of while still feeling I haven't missed out on crucial episodes in air quotes. So I think the the overload of content, um no one's really studied this yet and and it's not really our focus right now, but I think looking at kind of the overload of content versus the gradual drip feed content model, I think that would be interesting to research a bit and how pe- and how people respond to these and what they think of them. I mean, that's certainly like for me. That's I, I don't watch an awful lot of uh, of, of Twitch streams, mm. and when I do, it's generally an event. Like the only game I really watch a lot of is is Hearthstone. Mm. Um, so I'll watch like the World Championships or something when when they were on. Um, or like you know events like uh, games like quick you know the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the winter versions like they're they're, they're brilliant mm-hmm. and i will happily just sit and watch those but also for, for hearthstone in particular there, there are streamers that i would follow but i don't i, I rarely watch the streams i will just watch mm-hmm. the youtube highlights because that's they're they're just perfect little bite-sized chunks mm-hmm. if i'm you know waiting for something in the oven or something like that i could just <laughs> yeah. put that on for 10 minutes uh, it's very satisfying. Mm. Yeah, definitely, um, definitely. Well, I, I feel like we've covered all sorts of fascinating stuff here, Mark. But if there's anything that hasn't come up that you wanted to mention, um, feel free to do so now, or let people know where they can find you online if you well, if you'd like. Let me have a look at the question list that you uh, sent me, and I'll see if we've uh, yes, 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 on any of those. Um. Don't, don't ruin the magic here by saying there's a question. Oh, sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> no the yes, illusion sir. is shattered permanently now. Um, no, that's fine. I've, uh, it's come up before. I guess uh, you did ask one, one about has the game ever bonded you with a stranger? Yes, 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 yes. So I only have one example of this ever because uh, I've never really played MMO games at all. Uh, I played Eve a fair bit, but but I never really got engaged with the social aspect of Eve. In hindsight, that that yeah. was an error because that's the best part of Eve. But I but I <laughs> didn't when I played. But um, the closest weirdly would be from Counter Strike because I remember playing on a particular Counter Strike server, and there was a particular player who was the other person kind of competing with me to be the best player on that server. And I remember we got to know each other, in fact, quite well, simply through this online competition. Um, and I think, think that's, 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 that's probably fairly unusual to get to know one's competitors in games rather than one's allies in yeah, games. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, we would chat a lot with this, with this kind of friendly competition aspect to it. And we would compete to be the first player who would knife the other <laughs> rather than, um, <laughs> being killed with guns. And although I, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer in touch with this guy at all. Um, it, it, 
it was fun to have a rival, I guess, basically. Yeah. And um, I've never really had that in any other game, as far as I can think. And that was probably probably the best kind of bonding with a strange experience, I think, that games gave me, actually. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the most heartwarming um, we <laughs> oh, might each other story ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. I'm very glad. I'm very glad. Um, yeah, that, that, was, that was really, really good, Mark. And, and, like, again, like, if you wanted... I don't know if you want people to check it out on the internet but if they do oh, yeah, so, play a game like let them know where they can find so, it so uh on twitter you, you can find me at mrj underscore games at twitter um my website is ultraratioregum.co.uk which is hard to spell um so basically fantastic fantastic or if you go to uh bit.ly slash mrj underscore papers then you'll find all my uh, academic work there and that links back to my website one one of my tasks for this year is to shift to a new website name because the old one is just so hard to say and no one knows what it is so i need to get on to that at some point i think um, what about your books? Yeah, are they, are so they more directed to kind of the, the kind of academic yes, field, so or could they? First book is kind of fifty percent game studies, fifty percent game design, I guess. The Twitch book will be firmly game studies. The next book after that, which 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 will be on fantasy sports, will be a, will be another kind of fifty fifty game studies game design book. And then beyond that, I have plans for about five more books, uh, but I don't know which I'll do next. But some others are more designy ones. Some are more studies e ones. So I'm not so so I'm not quite sure yet. But my first book, which is which is being which is being published by uh, Bloomsbury later this year, that's fifth. That's that's fifty fifty on the game studies slash game design. I think uh, that, would, that would appeal to just like someone who's interested in games, or is it a bit too Definitely. academic? Or... Like, um, I think it would definitely appeal to anyone with an interest in in lucking games, in skilling games, anyone with interest in in games history, and anyone with an interest in kind of thinking critically about the experience of play in games. I think if you, dear listener, fall into any of those kinds of uh, groups, I think this is the book for you. We've got. He a, says, a, "There's a very okay. high class of listener to, to this show, so I'm sure at least no, at least five or six of them would, would fit that category." <laughs> Um, excellent excellent yeah thanks very much Mark. that that was super good was that was that okay for you was that enjoyable yeah well thank you too that was great uh i enjoyed it hugely yeah definitely excellent so i handed him my bottle and drank down my last swallow then he bombed a cigarette and asked me for a line and the night got deathly quiet and his face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game, boy You gotta learn to play it right You got to know when to hold him Know when to fold him Know when to walk away Know when to run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done Now every gambler knows that the secret to surviving 